Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Alexander Lohr Hansen, a PhD student at the Steno Diabetes Center in Copenhagen and the Department of Clinical Epidemiology at Aarhus University Hospital, also in Denmark. After completing medicine at the University of Southern Denmark in 2017, Alexander went on to complete a master's at the same institution. His particular interest is in the study of birth weight, a marker for an adverse fetal environment and the consequences that flow from this. Alexander's a Renaissance chap and has worked variously as a kindergarten teacher, a sales consultant in the Philippines, and a CrossFit instructor at the Odense Bodybuilding Club. He's also volunteered at a hospital in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania in 2013 and completed a clinical internship in Zanzibar in the same country. Most recently, Alexander held a residency at the Department of Gastroenterology at Herlev Hospital in Denmark. He's also participated in the DARE Fellowship Program, led by medical research carried out at Stanford University and the University of California, San Francisco, both, of course, in the United States. Alexander grew up in a very small town of only 80 houses, but has traveled to over 40 countries. And when not doing medicine, he was uh, into mixed martial arts, uh, as you might gather from his work as a CrossFit instructor. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Alexander Hansen. Welcome. Thank you very much, Jonathan. So let's start at the beginning. What, what, what's inspired you to go into medicine and in particular in the field that you're working in, in, in diabetes and low birth weight? Well, I think, you know, as, as, as a lot of people, it's, I mean, it probably started as more of a family thing. I think my, I mean, my grandfather and my father and my brothers, uh, all doctors, um, however, I think I've always tried to just go with what I found interesting. And I think growing up, I was just, I was captivated by the world of science as a whole. I remember spending a lot of time seeing all these nature documentaries and these different programs. And I, I was a very curious um, young child. And I just remember giving my father so many questions and his way of answering them so in depth just ignited a sort of curiosity in, in medicine and the human body that's just never faded. So I think medicine to me was sort of a way of, of combining my, my love of science and then some desire to help people. Regarding diabetes, growing up, I think I've always heard about, you know, the rise of the obes obesity epidemic, how type 2 diabetes used to be a disease primarily for older individuals and how, you know, heart disease, cholesterol, sugar, fats, and all this. And I think the complexity of these cardiometabolic diseases, and at least back then, the lack of evidence of how we could slow it down and all these different theories was just a, it seemed like a very, very interesting field uh, to go into. Yeah, it's, it's astonishing, isn't it? That, uh, well, certainly when I was growing up, uh, the shortage of food was the major threat to international health, you know, famines and such like. And now it's the overabundance of food to a large portion of the world. Anyway, there is, of course, still tragically famine. So as I mentioned in my introduction, and we've just hinted at, your main research interest is in the study of birth weight and its consequences. Can you talk us through how you first became interested in this topic and then talk us through the work you've been doing? 
Sure. Um, so I think this interest actually on, in birth weight, it's it sort of developed by a bit of coincidence. Um, so during, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, that coincided with my first position as a junior doctor on, I was actually first on the, what we call front lines of, you know, an infectious disease department here. Um, and I think this, the time of the pandemic as a young doctor was a very intense and difficult time. Um, and, and during all this chaos and stress, I, I found myself really longing for the research aspect of medicine. So on my time off, I, I explored opportunities um, for doing more research. And this led me to my current mentor, Professor Alan Vo, who works in, in field programming. And it was both very novel and intriguing to me. It was sort of the, you know, the concept of that health and disease could be influenced so early in life, even like in utero, even bef like when it was just a fetus. Um, and this sort of field has very, it aligned with my interest in epidemiology, data, and cardiometabolic diseases. Um, and I think maybe before we delve into my own research, I should probably, uh, maybe I should give you an introduction to the concept of uh, this fetal programming before. Yeah, absolutely. It's always good to have uh, a baseline. So yes, please do. Yeah, so I, I think... If we start with the fetal um, programming or, you know, thrifty phenotype, or it's also now, I think, more known as the developmental origins of health and disease. And the really foundational work of this began in the 1970s with a Norwegian epidemiologist, uh, Anders Forsdal, who sort of, he, he brought up the notion that early life conditions could influence the disease risk much later in life. And then in the 1990s, um, this idea really gained traction by the important work of Hales and Barker, which sort of, they, they found a more direct link between uh, low birth weight or being small at birth, and then increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes and hypertension. And other very interesting um, studies that came here are these sort of quasi-experimental studies um, this is actually, I'm glad you talked about famines earlier. The, so this, a lot of studies on this has been done on different famines, like uh, the Dutch famine of 1994 to 95, the Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian famine of 1932 to 33, and even the Chinese famine of a bit later. And these sort of natural experiments, if we can call them this, they provided very valuable um, insights where these we saw that these famine conditions while being in utero had uh, resulted in a light, in a higher likelihood of developing type 2 diabetes and other metabolic disorder, disorders but much later in life um and i think this this is sort of the core of the fetal programming hypothesis here that suggests that a you know a developing organism or fetus uh, in this case it sort of adapts its physiology, its structure, metabolism in response to some uh, environmental stressors, which could be malnutrition, toxins, infections, or anything that sort of disrupts the right uh, 
environment for the adequate environment for fetal growth. And these adaptations in here are actually more initially survival mechanisms. It's it's sort of we can we can think of it that the fetus is trying to optimize its energy utilization and its sort of how to get everything it can out of the very nutrient sparse environment it is. So therefore it might, you know, increase glucose production to ensure adequate supply to the most vital organs like the brain. But this comes at expense of less growth in something like muscles, subcontinuous tissues and other organs. And uh, these adaptations that are actually beneficial for survival here for the for the fetus and and, in a nutrient poor environment they may become very detrimental um, later in life and and this is sort of what the entire idea is it is that this mismatch between these early life adaptations and then later life conditions they will predispose an individual to various health issues and here it's especially the cardiometabolic diseases and as you mentioned earlier, we here as researchers often use low birth weight as a proxy marker for this adverse interuterine environment. And, you know, an, an idea here in the modern time, thanks to the advances we've made lately in medicine, particularly here in the infant care and neonatal care, it means that a lot of infants who might have succumbed to the consequences of these adverse fetal environments in the past, they now survive, which is incredible. However, we should recognize that this survival may come at a cost of increased susceptibility to chronic diseases later in life. And, and this is something that I do most of my research on, these early life conditions and then the risk of developing disease later in life. You mentioned a thrifty phenotype. I wonder if you can expand on that a little bit more. And you know, to my mind, it kind of makes sense that if a baby is born with a low birth weight, that that implies something's gone on in utero. Um, when was the sort of the epiphany that this was more of a marker uh, for what might have happened whilst the baby was developing and what the longer term implications are? Sure. So I think like the, the thrift of thrifty phenotype, uh, that was something I think Hales and Barker called it more at, at the time when they did their most of their work. But it's it's sort of the same, if you call it fetal programming or developmental origins of health and disease. It's, it's all in the sort of the same sphere of this something happening very early in life and then affecting you much later in life. And just like you you said, it's it's a very the original idea stems from evolutionary biology. I think we've they've seen it also with a lot of animals where this you have sort of this uh, plasticity very early in life, especially in utero, where you can adapt to survive in different environments. Um, so we see if it's, you know, even during early childhood, if it's very, if you are born or grow up in a very hot environment then you are you are sort of easier adapting to that hot environment than if you were born in a very cold environment and these sort of different adaptations we see uh, that are just making you to survive in the environment you're exposed to 
But what we see most today is that if you're born of a low birth weight or small, that means you have sort of adapted more to a very sparse environment. But at least in, in our countries, the Western countries, and most today, actually now, you, you, you grow up not in a sparse environment. You grow up with a, a very affluent environment, right? Like you talked about an abundance of food um, and especially, you know, refined uh, sugar and more fats and more nutrient dense. And these, this predisposition you have is what we have actually found in other studies is that you get the diseases like type 2 diabetes earlier you need less of a metabolic disturbances to develop the disease alexander thank you for that in 2022 you presented an abstract at the european association for the study of diabetes congress in stockholm sweden entitled low birth weight is associated with lower age and body mass index at the time of type 2 diabetes diagnosis in the danish dd2 cohort Please tell us about this uh, this research and the interlinked current manuscript, which I know you're working on. Sure. So, so this was my this was actually my first uh, study in my PhD uh, here in 2022, and this presentation I did um, it was centered on the relationship between birth weight, yeah, and the clinical presentation at type two diabetes diagnosis, and we. We sort of had the idea of, you know, when you are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, that's when we first have uh, people in the clinic with this disease. And that's where we start treating them. And we wanted to see if some a sim- sim- simple marker as birth weight, if that could sort of stratify individuals, if that would show a different kind of uh, presentation. And to do this, we used um, a, yeah, a Danish cohort called the DD2, which has around 10,000 individuals who are all newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. That means when the general practitioner diagnoses them, they ask if they want to be included in our study. And then what is really the reason we in Denmark are very good at these uh, epidemiological studies is, is every single individual in Denmark has given this uh, civil personal registration number. And then uh, that is sort of linked to almost every single government uh, thing in Denmark. Like that means that we can link everyone in this cohort to a wide range of the health and administrative uh, registries. So everything from hospital contact information, diagnosis, prescription histories, causes of death, uh, cancer registries, basically everything is just linked to these individuals. And that makes it that we have so much data available on on these individuals however one thing doing these kind of studies on birth weight is 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 kind of tricky obtaining reliable unbiased information on these early life factors um because type 2 diabetes is you know it's still a disease that manifests typically later in life usually around the 50-60s um and then getting birth data 60 years back, there's not a lot of places where they have registries for that. But again, in Denmark, we, uh, we're quite lucky that 
we are quite the data whores, you could call us. Um, so we partnered with our Danish National Archives, and they have actually stored like original handwritten myth- midwife records from as far back as the early 1900s. And that means that we were able to track this birth weight information for everyone, almost everyone in the entire cohort. And then that meant we were able to really explore how these individuals with a lower birth weight might present differently at the time of type 2 diabetes diagnosis. And our findings, I think, is quite revealing. We observed that, you know, for every kilogram decrease in birth weight, we saw a 3.3 year earlier onset of type 2 diabetes. And if you think about this, you know, the difference between the clinical low birth weight and the and high birth weight, there's about two kilograms different. And that is almost a seven year earlier onset of type 2 diabetes. And despite this earlier onset, we also saw that, you know, being of a lower birth weight, even here under 3000 grams or three kilograms was associated with less obesity, more comorbidities, including hypertension and a greater use of glucose lowering medication. Um, so it's interesting that this is just, you know, just a simple marker of birth weight. And it sort of showed us this, that the, what we believe the hypothesis is that if you are of a lower birth weight and you have this predisposition to type two diabetes, you get it sort of, we could call it easier or just, you need less metabolic disturbances to actually manifest the disease. And from that, that led us to hypothesize that these individuals with the lower birth weight might also experience a more severe disease course than other individuals with type two diabetes. So that led me to um, what I presented here at the European uh, Study of Diabetes Congress here this year in 2023, which was a follow-up study where we looked at the association between birth weight and the risk of developing cardiovascular disease after type 2 diabetes diagnosis. And here, what we found was that, again, here just being below the three kilos, um, you had a markedly higher risk of adverse cardiovascular events. Here, specifically, we saw more of strokes, peripheral revascularization, and cardiovascular-associated deaths. And actually, the 10-year the absolute risk difference was about 3% higher in those with a, the birth weight under 3 uh, kilos to having a higher birth weight. And that I think is a very substantial difference in a population already at elevated risk of cardiovascular events. What I think these findings could indicate is that these individuals with lower birth weight and type 2 diabetes, they might benefit from more aggressive, you know, um, tailored strategies, particularly for the cardiovascular complications. At least that's what I think uh, we could benefit from this. It's fascinating to see the, the I mean, the, it, this is not a small effect, right? Three and a half years to diagnosis per, per kilo. That is really, really, um, really powerful. Um, I, w- I want to switch tack a little bit. I'm, I'm a huge fan, Alexandra, of healthcare professionals experiencing how it's done in well, different institutions for sure, but other countries, especially 
so-called less developed environments and personally consider my missions, my surgical missions to other countries to be among the most important things I did uh, as a surgeon, often, frankly, learning much more than I taught. How do you feel your experiences in Dar es Salaam and um, elsewhere uh, shaped um, in Zanzibar, shaped and contributed to your current outlook on medicine, especially given your interest in low birth weight? Um, what are your biggest takeaways from the, this period in your life, or these periods, I should say, in your life? Yeah, the, that's a it's a very good question. I definitely think you, you know working in Dar es Salaam as a young medical doctor was it was very transformative. It was very it was a very stark reality of seeing the challenges of healthcare in a low income country. Um, I think it it really opened your eyes to to how different it is. But also, it, it's sort of, you know, the, the creativity and sort of resilience these healthcare workers have in, in overcoming this, I mean, severe resource limitations was, was very inspiring. And I think I didn't notice at the time when I was there, but then later, having really thought about this, I think it experienced my, also my view of how we see, you know, precision medicine, if we can call it that, where... You know, usually it's been empathized that this precision medicine is only something, you know, for the wealthy countries of the world. But I think it, it, it is something that is very important in environments that have very few resources, where this is where we could, it's basically stratifying treatment or interventions to a specific group, um, meaning we can optimize these limited resources and i think really in these more low-income countries like tanzania is is where we can have the biggest impact impact of this and i think in regards to you know later thinking about birth weight and fetal programming i think i've realized that you know this gave me a real world context to this um because we see this sort of dual burden of both malnutrition and then also obesity and type 2 diabetes in Tanzania and other of these low-income countries and it's it's interesting to see here that we see this high burden of this malnutrition and especially in pregnancy and then that results you know in a, in a low birth weight and then we also see later the advent of the obesity and type 2 diabetes where I think mainly we also have had a emergence of a you know more western diet and access to refined sugar in in these countries and i i think we now see that a lot of these individuals that are born of the malnutrition are growing up and they are more predisposed to these cardiometabolic diseases and i think this is a one of the reasons we also see an increasing incidence in the low-income countries of the world yeah um i know on one trip to india i was astonished to see that one very well-known brand of fast food pizza um, had been introduced and into an overwhelmingly vegetarian environment. The, the pepperoni sausage had been replaced with various other things, but the caloric value of one of these pizzas blew my mind. It was more than twice what an average uh, Indian in that region would consume 
uh, in a day, more than twice in one pizza. So yeah, it's um, it's astonishing. So back into it. Uh, in 2021, you co-authored a paper entitled Adverse Pregnancy Outcomes, an Incident Heart Failure in the Women's Health Initiative. Can you tell us a bit about that paper, please, and what you uncovered? Yeah, so this was, uh, there was a research project I did as a medical student while on this research fellowship at Stanford University and University of California of San Francisco. Um, and we looked at the link between adverse pregnancy outcomes, such as, you know, hypertension disorders during pregnancy, preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, low and high birth weights, um, and how that would relate to later risk of disease for the the mother for the pregnant mother um it was sort of uh, we wanted to look at specifically heart failure and and the idea behind this is that we don't really know if um, we see that these adverse pregnancy outcome does relate to risk of later disease we don't know if it's due to some underlying vulnerability or you know, where the pregnancy stresses the body and then the adverse pregnancy outcome sort of shows us a window into this vulnerability or predisposition, or we, if it exacerbates a pre-existing condition or initiates a new pathway, we don't know that, but we know that we can see that these adverse pregnancy outcomes, they have an uh, elevated risk of developing heart failure. And we saw that specifically with the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. And specifically what we saw, and this is where it's very interesting, we saw that having this uh, hypertensive disorders during pregnancy was related to having a higher risk of developing heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And this, you know, this preserved ejection fraction is, is especially important because we don't really, we don't see a clear, uh, at least yet evidence of any therapies that are reducing the risk of mortality in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So I think this really, again, represents, uh, and represents an early opportunity for aggressive preventive, perhaps interventions for, for these women. I mean, we have them in when they're pregnant in the clinic, so if we're already by that time can see that, okay, these individuals are predisposed to developing a disease later, perhaps we can intervene early and more aggressive on these. Um, possibly before a lot of the traditional risk factors we look at have come, you know, maybe they don't have um, um, dyslipidemia or obesity or type two diabetes at this point. It's again, fascinating. Uh stuff. I mean, the, the focus of your work seems to be on, you know, subtle things that uh, happen and then have predictive value of disease much later in life. So y your research group, tell us about how you came together and what other things you're currently looking at. Yes. So I am part of a translational type 2 diabetes research group at the Steno Diabetes Center in Copenhagen. And our group specifically work with the fetal programming, uh, which I've talked about earlier here. And 
what we really try to do is we, we look at these research questions and try to answer them from every angle we can. So we have people working with basic sciences like stem cells, fat, liver cells. We have bioinformatics working with proteomics, metabolomics, you know, genomics, bioassets, lipid assets. We have people doing clinical studies on human and, and we have someone like me who does more of the large observational studies. And this is the, the translational framework where a hypothesis from, let's say, from my findings then inspired the lab researchers to, to explore new theories and vice versa. And I think this is really an interesting framework where we can where we can really see how our independent findings still add up to tell the same story. And I think that's incredible. Another interesting thing is this uh, Steno Diabetes Center is uh, it's an all uh, diabetes hospital. And it actually comes from some of the, you know, founder founders of the Nova Nordisk company. So I think it was in, what was this in the early 1932, 40s or something. Um, one of the founders here, um, Hans Christian Hedom, he uh, wanted, they, he made a hospital that were for treatment of only people with diabetes. And back then it was a private hospital. And then later it developed more and more. And in 2017, the Steno Diabetes Center was handed from Novo Nordisk over to a complete public uh, diabetes hospital. Um, and we now have six other of these Steno centers uh, around Denmark. And we are still, all of these Steno diabetes centers are guided by the principles of looking to very rigorous research and, and you know, patient-centered approaches. Um, yeah, and I, I think just working in this environment and with this group is just, um, it's truly inspiring. So what other projects have you got lined up in the near future? Well, let me phrase it another way. Um, if you could get your teeth into the kind of work that you like to do, the observational studies, what, what, what would be a target for you? Yes, so actually we have, I, I already have what I would call multiple interesting projects lined up. I think the next main project is a follow-up study looking into the relationship between low birth weight and development of chronic kidney disease following type 2 diabetes diagnosis. Sort of the same framework we did at the cardiovascular diseases. Um, and then um, I also have a, a future endeavor here in the, next, in the new year where I'm actually going to London to work on an upcoming, uh, we have an upcoming collaboration with the Precision Healthcare University Research Institute at Queen Mary University of London under the guidance of Professor Claudia Langenberg, where I hear I will be working with this incredible team of researchers who are just renowned for, they have an expertise in sort of bridging the gap between, you know, the predictive biomarker research and then identifying underlying causal mechanisms at, and what we want to do long-term is we want to combine their really prof proficiency in these prediction models and then our team's translational and clinical expertise to develop risk prediction algorithms and prognostic module uh, models for cardiovascular disease as well as other organ and fatal outcomes in 
patients with type 2 diabetes. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. And then another, I think, very innovative project that I am involved in is where we partner with uh, the Danish National Archives and the Center for um, AI in the, at the University of Copenhagen. And we are in the process of developing an algorithm that automatically transcribes uh, our all the historical original midwife records that are dating back from the you know early 1900s until the end of the century um, and this is you know it's a huge endeavor because these are there are so many of these uh, midwife records and they're all handwritten um, but I think this project could really pave the way of using some of what I think most countries actually have is the old stored information that is just sitting in our national archives. And we can we can use these historical documents and combining it with new technology to really help the future population. I think that is a, an, a very interesting uh, approach. Well, thinking about aspirational um, approaches, I, I like to ask all my guests this. I think it provides some interesting insights. If you were granted three wishes for your area of healthcare, or frankly, anything in healthcare, what would those wishes be, Alexander? Okay, <laughs> yeah, that is a, it's a good question. Um, I think first off, I, I hope to see a, an advent of a more precision medicine approach. I think, you know, some way of getting the right treatment for the right patient group, I think this could especially, um, you know, help to overcome some of the ever rising cost of healthcare. Um, you know, it's a, it's a way of, I imagine, you know, coming to the, your physician and then integrating all various sorts of data and then to choose the best treatment suited for this group. Um, secondly, I, I hope, and this is through my research to see a, a shift in how we perceive patients and their condition. You know, instead of the more old dogma of attributing diseases and symptoms to personal failings, I hope we see a more understanding approach. You know, a good case is obesity, where I think still a lot of people are seeing, you know, these uh, people struggling with obesity of just being, you know, lazy and need to pull themselves together. And instead of thinking, you know, perhaps some people just, get obese easier than other people perhaps some people are more hungry than other people perhaps exercise is harder for some people than others and i i think this is you know the mentality of you know if i can do it then everybody else should be able to do it i think it's a it's a fallacy and a oversimplified view we need to get rid of and i think lastly you know in the very future i sort of dream of a of a healthcare system that are enhanced by by technology where you know these digital tools they work more in synergy with us clinicians um you know i i imagine a system where you you walk in to see your patient your entire conversation or perhaps examination is recorded and then it gets translated into the patient journal in a sort of systematic way so when you go in and you wanted to draft your patient journal you there's already sort of a draft from the technology and, and, you know, the 
AI system, if we can call it that, given overview of similar system, symptoms from an earlier patient history, it can help give suggestions for diagnosis, for the tests, treatments, and will not be a system replacing the clinician, but more of a system working in synergy with the clinician. Um, especially, I hope it will remove a lot of the, you know, ever burdening task of paperwork and then allow us for more actual face time with the patients. Um, I really hope I will get to see that. Well, I, um, I, I'm right there with you. In fact, I've been playing around with the project at the moment with a group of people to do exactly that, because I remember being told as a medical student that the most important part of the interaction is when the patient first comes into the, the room or you first come to the bedside and making that first assertion, is the patient ill? What do you notice? What can you tell about them? If you're looking at a computer screen, you can't tell anything. So I'm, I'm with you. Um, I've been fascinated by this conversation, but I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Alexander Luhansen. It's been wonderful learning more about you and the start of what I'm sure is going to be an absolutely fascinating career and that I hope will bring you back here uh, as you learn more and can teach us more. You'll have to return as your work advances. Well, thank you very much, Jonathan. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Um, and yeah, I think definitely we should, uh, we should do this again at a later time in my career. And I'm, I'm also looking forward to getting together for a glass of Aquavit in one of my favorite cities in the world. So that, <laughs> that, that would be very fun. Uh, and this time of the year, it's, of course, gorgeous. So, folks, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Check out the archives. Tell your friends. Like us on social media. You know the gig. Join us next week, please, for another fascinating episode of the EMJ podcast. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sackier, and I thank you for listening. Please. Stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.